all at once up front here. I'm going to read it uh, sort of as, as we go this morning to help us uh, understand the flow of it a little bit better. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That's a familiar verse to you, probably. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you a future and a hope. You've heard that verse as well. How about these two? The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters what, cover the sea. Or the righteous will live by faith. Those are by far, those last two verses, by far the most well-known verses from Habakkuk, from this little book here. I shared last week the encouragement of the Chick-fil-A guy who said we need to study the minor prophets more. Uh, I share those several verses here with you in part to make the point that many Christians know these little snippets from the Old Testament pretty well. I know the plans I have for you and so on, but um, do we know where they come from? What was Zechariah saying? What was Jeremiah's message? What was Habakkuk's message? Uh, what does it mean the righteous will live by faith? That's uh, that's really the theme for chapter 2 here. And it's a, a crucial, central theme, uh, of course, for the whole Bible. Uh, one famous uh, ancient rabbi was once asked essentially the same question that, that Jesus was asked once. What is the greatest of the commandments? Which is the most significant? And really the sense of that question is how, how do you... How do you boil them all down? What, what, is, what is the most important thing? And, and this famous rabbi, uh, ancient rabbi, uh, answered with Habakkuk 2, verse 4. The righteous will live by faith. And of course, Jesus' answer was, was a little different. But in, in some ways, this is a very good summary of the whole Christian life as well. The sum of our, our uh, serving God. Uh, in our day, it's still widely recognized that faith is central to religion. Um, in fact, it's less common in pop culture to hear about Christians or followers of Christ or even Jews or Buddhists and so on. We're all lumped together in the fuzzy, bland term, people of faith. Right? We're all people of faith. But, but there's that significance uh, somehow understood of, of faith. Um, someone like Oprah, who, who doesn't really believe any Christian orthodoxy yet, talks about faith all the time. Uh, she hosted a show a few years ago called Belief, um, a synonym for faith. Uh, still 99.9% .9 of our candidates for political office will say, I am a person of faith. Uh, they all are. Uh, faith is important to me, uh, things like that. Well, what is, what is this faith that our whole nation seems to think is still so important, characteristic of what we supposedly all are uh, and have? Well, I want to note four aspects of faith this morning from this chapter here, Habakkuk chapter 2. Just uh, remember the context again. We began this last week. Uh, Habakkuk is, is this dialogue with God. It's, it's the prophet Habakkuk talking with God. And it, it's kind of unique among the prophets in that way. And, and Habakkuk began his prayer, his first complaint last week with, Lord, look at all this injustice around me, all this violence. People are flaunting your law and you don't seem to care. You don't seem to answer. And we read God's response to him. Habakkuk, if, if you had eyes to see, you would see that I am doing something. I am sending the Babylonians to put an end to it. And Habakkuk, you will be astonished. And we read Habakkuk's second reply to God. He said, basically, the Babylonians, 
That sounds like a terrible idea. There's so much worse than what I've just complained about in Judah here. Um, How does that fit with your character as a holy God, as our God, our covenant God? And so we left off last week, Habakkuk, waiting on God's reply again. And central to that reply is this idea of God's people living by faith. So look at number one on your outline, the waiting of faith. This is the waiting of faith. And we'll read verses 2 and 3 first here. This is the beginning of God's response. Then the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision and inscribe it on tablets, that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. God's answer to Habakkuk is going to be some vision of the future. Habakkuk, I'm going to tell you more about reality and what's going to happen. And his answer to Habakkuk's questions about how he's going to be faithful to his people is going to play out, God says, at the appointed time. It's not going to happen, Habakkuk, right away or in your time. It's, there's a time appointed for it. And in fact, you need to wait for it. Uh, Though it tarries, wait for it. In other words, God has the long run. He has all of history in view. The the appointed time here can be translated the end. It's it's established language for the ultimate end, the the final goal of God's uh, whole history of redemption. It's still future to us. So he's saying his answer to Habakkuk is certain, but it's going to play out over a long period of time. In fact, long after Habakkuk's lifetime. And so a most important aspect of faith is that it requires waiting. Right? It takes hold of what it knows about God in, in the past and the present and, and applies that to the future. Despite the difficulty, as Habakkuk's wrestling with, of, of putting together what we know about God and what, what we see in our world and what we see in our lives. God calls the believer to believe what he says to Habakkuk here. It will certainly come. Verse 3, uh, faith begins where, where sight ends. Right? That's really basically the definition of faith that we read in, in Hebrews, from Hebrews chapter 11, just a little bit ago. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, but the, the conviction of things not seen. Well, I think that point is not well understood, uh, certainly in our broader culture, but, but even by many, many Christians. What, what do we mean that faith is, is just it's in what we can't see? Many people understand faith to be something that you just believe, right? Something that you're hoping for. Uh, it's not necessarily rational. It can't be proved. You don't really know it. You have, you have faith, right? It's a nice, comfortable, comforting way of thinking, even if it's not rational. You just have to believe. Um, Mark Twain summarizes the, the, maybe the harsher popular understanding in that way. when He famously said, Having faith is believing something you just know ain't true. That's Mark Twain. Uh, there's a number of bumper stickers about that, that bring out this, this popular understanding of faith, too. Maybe you've seen some of them. One of them says, too stupid to understand science? Try religion. Or another one says, I'm not anti-religion, I'm pro-reality. Too many, I think, professing Christians also sell faith short sort of in that direction as well though and talk about faith as something you you can't see you just believe because you believe it just believe it's a leap of faith 
But everyone exercises faith to some degree in this, this key sense of faith being a belief about the future, even if it doesn't involve God. A, a belief about the future based on a rational understanding of, of now and what you think you know. So you don't exercise any faith to understand that the sun is shining right now. Right? You can see it. There's no faith involved. But you, you exercise faith to a degree to assert that the sun is going to shine tomorrow. Right? None of us have seen tomorrow's sun. Right? But, but because of what we know about the sun today and yesterday and through all of history, we assert what's going to happen tomorrow. People put their faith in certain policies, I mean, economic or military policies, based on what they think they know about human nature and about technology and about how certain other policies have worked in the past. We believe we know what will happen in the future because of certain actions. So, so what is the basis on which Habakkuk is to believe here as he's trying to wrestle with, Lord, how can, how can this be your plan? How can you be good and just? And God says, it will not fail, it will certainly come. What's the basis on which Habakkuk is supposed to have faith? Is he just supposed to believe? No, the basis is God himself. Right? What Habakkuk and what you objectively know about God is the basis of faith. The God who revealed himself in his creation, in, in, his, in all of history, in his word, in your life. Has revealed himself in his faithfulness countless times to countless promises in the past. And again, in the certainty and reliability of his word. That's, that's the rational basis for our faith and what we haven't seen yet. Now, last week we noted that what Habakkuk is wrestling with largely is what philosophers call the problem of evil. The biggest philosophical problem there is. How, how, can, we, how can we hold the idea of, of a good and sovereign God, and yet have all this suffering and evil in the world. And I noted last week, there, there's no fully satisfactory answer to that question, but there are many things we can say uh, toward an answer. For one, God allows suffering, evil, and uncertainty to test your faith, to test your loyalty. Are you, are you looking for something easy to put your hope and your trust in, or something true? And something lasting. Did you notice that it, it, what, what God says in the beginning of this answer here sounds sort of contradictory? Look at verse 3 again. Uh, he's speaking of this, this vision. He's going to give Habakkuk. It hastens toward the goal. It will not fare, fail. Though it tarries, it delays. Wait for it. For it will certainly come. It will not delay. Well, which is it? Is it coming quickly? Is it not delaying? Or is it delaying and you're going to have to wait? Well, I think that just reflects the difference between God's perspective and ours. From God's perspective, everything in history, past and future, is hastening towards his goal. It all fits together perfectly. Nothing's out of place. He can see all of it. But from Habakkuk's perspective, from our perspective, it's a long time to wait. We can't see how it all fits together. And so we do have to wait. And if, if you know God, you, you can know that God sees the big picture in which history is racing toward that ultimate goal. It will not fail. Nothing will be out of place. Nothing is contingent in God's sovereign plan. All right, that's very different from our world. When, when we move towards a goal, we have to adjust to many contingencies to pull it all together. 
right? There was an event yesterday where it rained and the plan changed and someone gets sick or the cost is higher than expected and, and it changes, right? Um, not so with God's promises and God's plan. So that's the waiting of faith. Secondly, on your outline, the life of faith. The life of faith. This brings us to the, the key and, and most well-known verse here, verse 4, which says, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. The righteous will live by his faith. Remember the question that, that Habakkuk is posing to God here. Lord, how can you use, how can you prosper these these horrible Babylonians in your plan? How can you let the people of faith here in Judah, even if we're a very tiny number now, how can you let us suffer? And God's basic response in this chapter to Habakkuk is, is this, and, and it's boiled down in this verse in a sense. He's saying, despite appearances, despite outward circumstances, Habakkuk, now and forever, the, the contrast between my people and those who reject me, like the Babylonians, could not be more drastic. One lives and one dies. This is, is such a rich statement that affirms so many things for, for Habakkuk and for us. Uh, God is saying, Habakkuk, the righteous will live. Right? You, you won't die. It's an affirmation of God's faithfulness. He's, he's saying, Habakkuk, the righteous will live by faith. It's a call to faith. And I, I wrestled this past two weeks with what, what particularly is this statement affirming? The righteous will live by faith. Is it affirming justification by faith and not by works? That is, it's not what we do that makes us right with God. Um, that message that's so clear and prevalent in the New Testament. Or, or is the emphasis on life the righteous will live. They, they get eternal life, God's people. Or is the emphasis on, on day-to-day living by faith? They, they live by faith. That's how we live every day. And, and I, I concluded, I don't think we need to make a choice. All of that is inseparable. It's all wrapped up in, in this statement here. Think about each of those things. Certainly it affirms that God's people are, are righteous. They're justified. That is, we're, we're right with God. We're forgiven not by our works, but by God's. What he's done, and, and by our simple faith in him, he gives us his grace. That message is maybe not as explicit or full in the Old Testament, but it's all over the Old Testament. It's explicit in Genesis. Abraham believed God, and it, that, that belief was credited to him as righteousness. Genesis 16 says. It's even clearer in the New Testament how this works in Christ. Uh, Paul uh, quotes this verse here, Habakkuk 3.4, uh, in his introduction to Romans, of all things, where he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to anyone who believes, anyone who has faith. And he goes on, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as is written. The righteous shall live by faith. We are righteous simply through faith, through nothing that we do. Uh, Paul quotes this verse in Galatians 3 as well. Same exact quote, basic, same basic point. Uh, but, but this uh, statement here is also an affirmation of the full eternal life that God gives to those who live by faith in him. Uh, God affirms Habakkuk's plea in chapter 1. We looked at last week. He said, Lord, why the Babylonians? He said, we will not die. 
That was Habakkuk sort of rehearsing God's promise. Lord, you've promised that we'll live. And God goes through the rest of this chapter here, chapter 2, to, to detail how everything the Babylonians do will ultimately come to ruin. In fact, in some sense, how the Babylonians don't really even live. In some sense, they're not really living. Um, verse 5 here, chapter 2, verse 5, God goes on with this contrast. Right? Verse 4, the, there's the proud and then there's the righteous who live by faith. Furthermore, wine betrays the haughty man so that he does not stay at home. He enlarges his appetite like shale, like death. And he is like death, never satisfied. He, he is like death, never satisfied. God's saying, Habakkuk, guess these, these proud Babylonians will prosper in a sense for a while, but they're not really even living. Their, their life is like death. They're, they're no match for the righteous who live forever. They're, they're already dead in a sense, unless they repent. And, and closely related to that is in the, in the sense of this verse here, but the righteous will live by faith, is just an affirmation that God's people Live by faith, then and now, day to day. This is what marks our life. Everything you do, the reason you get up in the morning, the reason you love your kids, change diapers, you go to work, you enjoy sunsets, is your faith in, in the unseen promises of the God that you know. It's living by faith. And, and more than Habakkuk, we can look back and know that it's in the God who became man, who died in your place, who raised to life. And who rules and reigns now in, in objective reality. That's the way that Hebrews 10 quotes this verse. Uh, in encouraging God's people to, to persevere. Uh, to live by faith day to day. Uh, just one, one last remarkable thing about this statement under this point. I, I want you to note is just the simplicity of it. The righteous will live by faith. This whole, this whole chapter details at length all that the Babylonians, all that, the, that unbelievers do to give meaning to their lives, to achieve greatness, to, to pursue something. Verse after verse after verse. And then we get one third of one verse about God's people. The righteous live by faith. They live simply and solely by faith in the living God. And, and they and you really live Thirdly, on your outline there, the vision of faith. The vision of faith. At this point, I want to read the rest of the chapter. Uh, the rest of the chapter uh, goes together rather tightly. And it's, it's five sections, five statements of woe. Uh, you'll find that word in each section. Woe against the Babylonians. A, a woe is not uh, really a, a pronouncement of judgment. So, so much as just an observation. This is the terrible situation you're in. Woe, woe is you. Um, and each of these five sections details the sort of the crimes of the Babylonians and then how it's going to be reversed and turned on their head, turned on its head uh, ultimately uh, in God's plan. Uh, so I, I have these sections listed there in your outline. Uh, verses six and eight are about their, their greed and their extortion of others. It says, will not all of these take up a taunt song against him, even mockery and insinuations against him. So it's in the it's in the voice of those who have been oppressed by the Babylonians all these years. And say, Woe to him who increases what is not his. For how long? And makes himself rich with loans. 
Will, you, will not your creditors rise up suddenly and those who collect from you awaken? Indeed, you will become plunder for them. So those the Babylonians have oppressed, they're going to rise up against them one day. Verse 8, because you have looted many nations, all the remainder of the peoples will loot you. Because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town and to all of its inhabitants. And then verses 9 to 11 is about their domination of other people. They're gaining security for themselves. It says, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to put his nest on high, to be delivered from the hand of calamity. You have devised a shameful thing for your house by cutting off many peoples. So you are sinning against yourself. And then verse 11 gives the reversal of that. They, they won't be safe even in their own houses. Their own houses, in a sense, will cry out against them. Surely the stone will cry out from the wall and the rafter will answer it from the framework. I'm going to skip over 12 to 14 for a moment here and come back to it as it's, it's really central to all of this. Verse 15 to 17 is about their immorality. Woe to you who make your neighbors drink who mix in your venom even to make them drunk so as to look on their nakedness. That probably means everything you might imagine it does. You will be filled with disgrace rather than honor. Now you yourself drink and expose your own nakedness. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter disgrace will come upon your glory. For the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you and the devastation of its beasts by which you terrified them because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land to the towns and all its inhabitants. And then the last few verses are about their idolatry. What profit is the idol when its maker has carved it? Or an image, a teacher of falsehood, for its maker trusts in its, his own handiwork when he fashions speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, Awake! Or to a mute stone, Arise! And that is your teacher? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver, and there's no breath at all inside it. Those are the woes that God pronounces about the future of Babylon to assure Habakkuk. And I want to come back to verses 12 to 14. Look at verse 12. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with violence, who builds his life on violence. And then, as a sort of summary woe in response, I think, to all of these descriptions of what Babylon is or anyone who rejects the Lord. Verse 13, Is it not indeed from the Lord of hosts that peoples toil for fire and nations grow weary for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, people in our day are still building lives or empires literally or figuratively on Injustice and lies and corruption, uh, ignoring God. But the Lord of hosts, God says, that's the God of armies, ensures his people here. Anyone who lives apart from him toils for nothing. That's the point. Verse 13. Uh, everything goes up in smoke in the end because everything is moving towards one goal and only one goal. The, the certain outcome of all of history, of every life, is that the earth will be filled with the knowledge, the, the acknowledgement, the understanding of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That is, it will be total. There will be nothing left one day of anyone or any of anything they did uh, who did not bow down to God. And that's, it's, it's clearly what God is saying is not just about the Babylonians. 
It's not just for that time. The Babylonians are just one example in a long line of failures of those who are not working towards God's goal. Uh, this is a, a true warning for, for every individual, past and present. Because the Lord is sovereign and ordains the whole purpose of history and of your life and the end of the earth, working against that means that your whole life would be utterly futile if you're not working towards the Lord's goal. All you've made, all the nights you stay up late working on something, all the study and degrees, all the parenting, all the kindnesses, all the money spent, all the hard labor, all of your relationships... God said it's all toil for fire. It goes up in smoke. It's not part of his plan. So what, what is your life building? What is your life working toward? This warning is not just for bloodthirsty ancient Babylonians. Anyone who's not living for the glory of God that will cover the earth because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our society is full of not bloodthirsty empire-building warriors, but, but many flavors of people who are living for themselves, rejecting the true God of all of history. There, there are many people of faith in our society, living relatively nice, quiet lives, but creating their own reality, creating their own version of, of faith. I know enough not to pick on John Elway or Peyton Manning around here, but I read an article about Jake Plummer this week. Maybe that's okay. Uh, former... Broncos quarterback um, who's living now just right here in Fort Lupton, uh, and he has a business growing psychedelic mushrooms, of all things. Um, and that's what the article is about, and that, that in itself was, was interesting. Uh, but I was drawn to the article because the title said something about his finding God in mushrooms. Um, but here's, here's what he said. The article quotes Jake Plummer, he says, we're searching for this answer to go to heaven, to be with God, but maybe we on earth are in heaven, and we ourselves are God. So, so Jake says, you know, maybe God's certain envision, uh, certain plan for the world is, is a load of garbage. Maybe, maybe I'm actually God. That's how he found God. Sadly, it's toiling for fire. Um, uh, unless coming to salvation in Christ. That, that's true for Individuals. It's a warning challenge to each of us. It's true for the Babylonians, for nations that don't serve the Lord and his vision for all of history. And there, the, the history is, is full of examples of that. Not only Babylon that did go away and fall apart, as God predicted here. Uh, the Roman Empire, Roman emperors made divine claims for themselves and their empire. And then it fell apart. Right? Gone for centuries and centuries now. Uh, what did Hitler predict about the Third Reich? That it would last for a thousand years, right? It was in flames within, within a decade. We need to think similarly, soberly about our nation and what it needs. Uh, does our nation need more red team policies and politicians than blue team ones or something? Or does it need the knowledge of the glory of the Lord? Those are entirely different things. Uh, don't put your trust, your hopes, your goals in anything other than King Jesus and his kingdom. That the kingdoms of this world come and go and, and are destined for judgment to the degree that they don't serve King Jesus. I think 
at times in ways American Christians are guilty of identifying too closely with certain politics as if this is where our hope lies or as if it's equivalent in some way to the advance of the church and the kingdom of God. The, The truth is that the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, the Green Party, the Constitution Party, and so on, they're all toiling for fire in that none of them explicitly are serving King Jesus and his goals for the world. It is the glory of the Lord that will cover the earth. That, that should keep us from fear about the glory of the Third Reich or, or the glory of communist China or American liberalism or whatever it is that we fear. It should, on the other hand, keep us from putting our hopes and joys in a particular party or candidates or policies to the degree that none of those have as their goal the goal of all of history. Right? That the knowledge of the glory of the Lord would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. If judgment and disintegration come to the United States one day, as it has to every other nation and empire in all of history, um, perhaps the church will in some degree, in some part, suffer along with the rest for not faithfully and tirelessly pointing people to Christ and, and spending much of that energy chasing political power or certain makeup of parties or institutions or elections or policies that had no lasting power or meaning because they weren't rooted in Christ and his goals. I could give all kinds of qualifications to those thoughts on, on application there. I'd be happy to talk about it more, but I'm not saying don't be involved or concerned about politics or policies. Uh, I am. Um, I'm not saying there's no proximate good in one policy or uh, law over another. There is. But it's something we need to think uh, more deeply, I think, about as, as those who are citizens of heaven and also secondarily are called as citizens of a particular nation uh, for now. Final brief point, fourthly on your outline. Uh, is the silence of faith. The silence of faith. The Lord concludes his whole response to Habakkuk here in verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. What's the first step to awaiting faith? A living faith that's oriented towards the goal of God himself. Often it's silence. A humble silence. In, in the immediate context here, God is showing in these last few verses the, the idiocy of idolatry, creating this thing out of wood or stone, and then going through all your incantations and dances and crying out and trying to get it to do something, to say something. God is essentially saying, and at close here, you need to, to shut up and listen to the one true God who speaks. It's, it's very similar to a better known verse in Psalm 46. Be still and know that I am God. Who is that, who is that command to in Psalm 46? Be still. I'm, I'm convinced it's not to Israel. It's not to you. It's not to me. It's not to believers. Psalm 46 says the nations are raging. They're raging against God and his plan. Um, they're doing their own thing. And God essentially says... Be still. Shut your mouths. Listen. I will be exalted among the nations, despite all your efforts. I will be exalted in the earth. 
Now, in some times, in some ways, God calls you and me to be still, right? to be silent. Not in the sense that we can't bring our burdens to God, bring our cries and complaints and, and problems. That's what Habakkuk does in this book and gives us an example of that. But, but Job is a good example. Habakkuk, you and I, we also often need to be silent, to listen to the God who is and who speaks. Uh, faith often resolves and strengthens in, in a peaceful waiting and listening. And that's where, that's where Habakkuk comes to at the end of this uh, book. Uh, this is the end of God's response, and we find no more, Habakkuk has no more complaint, no more questioning for now. Uh, the next chapter is, uh, Habakkuk has the final word. The next chapter is a song. We find Habakkuk singing. Uh, and we'll turn to that next week, the next two weeks, to consider Habakkuk's song. But we find him singing then uh, of the glory and the power of God and of his contented joy and peace in that God. So we'll turn to that song next week. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you again for your word to us this week that is living and active uh, and uh, sharp to cut to our hearts and we pray that that would be true of what we've heard and read this morning uh, that you would call us to uh, live by faith uh, to understand what that means um, even as difficult as that is in this world as, as Habakkuk makes clear in his uh, dialogue with God here Pray that you help us to continue to uh, learn and be encouraged and challenged in this book the next couple of weeks. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.